one of the goal of this book is really to create role models to which we're hoping thousands of women and men will be able to identify too. And for me, I was really hoping that it will trigger maybe a, a movement of researcher having this mission to reveal hidden figures of international relations. Hi, everyone. I'm Natalie Alexander, and welcome back to The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives Geneva, designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Today's episode brings us on a journey of archaeology. Not the type with shovels and brushes, but rather a restorative archaeology that sheds light on the stories of women who aren't well known in the history books. I spoke with Fatima Sator, Ellen Chesler, and Dan Plesch, two of the authors and the co-editor of a new book published this year called Women and the UN, A New History of Women's International Human Rights. It documents the stories of women, many from the Global South, who dedicated their work to ensuring women's human rights were recorded in UN conventions, treaties and documents. Yet despite this work, there's very little known about them and their contribution. Together, we talk about why documenting these stories of women in our history matters for our understanding of multilateralism today. And also consider if how we define multilateralism might need to evolve to fully comprehend the contribution of women to key multilateral decisions and documents that exist today. Let's take a listen. So hi, everyone. Welcome to the next page. And a really big thanks and welcome to Ellen, Fatima and Dan. Thanks for joining the podcast. A pleasure. Thanks How, for the invite, Natalie. Of course, you're joining us from three different locations. So different time zones, a global group. We really appreciate your time today. Before we kind of launch in and explore the book, I have a rapid fire question to you all. Your scholars, your researchers, your passionate explorers of history. Why does studying women in history matter to you? In just a few words, let's begin with Ellen. Well, I have to acknowledge my age here. Uh, half a century ago, I was a graduate student and earned a PhD in American history at Columbia University in New York when women were not part of the landscape of history. So I was one of the pioneers who made that happen. But I quickly found that the pressing policy and political concerns of the day kind of grabbed my attention more than scholarship. So when I finished my PhD, I left and became a part of the administration of the first woman who was ever elected to a city or statewide office in New York. This is not 1870, it's 1970, I remind our viewers. I'm old, but I'm not that old. But it took you know, more than 100 years for women to become part of the fabric of political life, even in the United States. I worked for Carol Bellamy, who many of, on this broadcast may know, uh, because she ultimately had a brilliant career in global public policy as head of UNICEF. I went back to the academy and sort of led a double life, going back and forth between scholarship and activism, but then made my career in philanthropy. So as I uh, end my career now, 50 years later, I very much want to leave a record and a narrative of the extraordinary women uh, agents of change whom I have had the privilege to work for over this long five decades. Amazing. Thanks, Ellen. Over to you, Fatima. Well, I think for me, the importance of studying history by also looking at it with the gender 
lens is to find other voices because there is history, the way we say it is very political. And who says history impacts the way we say history. So for me, by finding other voices and women voices have been invisible, as Ellen was saying. Yeah, this part of history and finding new voices who who tell history is, is really crucial because it gives you another perspective on what we know and the way we look at the word. And last but not least, Dan. Well, I think the women in my family were always just very strong and active participants in society. So growing up, when I went out of the family situation, I kind of found it weird that this was not the norm. <laughs> it was probably a starting point. Also, I had very strong Democrats of the English Victorian period in my family, and there are no statues to them. The statues in London are all generals and maybe slave owners, but they're not uh, English Democrats. And I think leaders as well, C.L.R. James, E.P. Thompson, people who, when I was a student, were huge role models of, kind of, of history from below. And as I guess I like to say to students, you know, so often in society, it's like in the family, what isn't being said is more important than what is being said. And often people will, will acknowledge that. So I think what we've shown, and I think it's regrettable that this volume had to be written at this time. This volume should have been written decades ago, to be frank. Uh, and that's a, a bigger question for uh, what likes to be called the Academy. But I think that these stories are, this, this history is of a huge reinforcement. You know, I have colleagues even now who propagate the nonsense that human rights are a Western middle-class invention, including women's rights. And this is deadly dangerous nonsense. And this volume, I think, is part of combating that. So so let's dive in then and, and speak about the book. It's an incredible volume of stories of women in history who've shaped key documents, declarations, UN conventions, and policies that are relevant to the international human rights of women across the world. So back to you, Dan. As one of the editors of this book, together with Rebecca Adami, in the commentary chapter, which is chapter 10, you speak of the restorative archaeology of knowledge about the role of women in the history of the UN. Walk us through the inspiration for this book, and what do you actually mean by restorative archaeology? Well, it's really Rebecca's idea that I've helped with and followed along with. Her work on women in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights demonstrated for the first time the, the critical role in drafting the Declaration by women from the Global South. And in parallel, in roughly the same period, the work I had been doing at SOAS with Fatima and uh, Elise did the same job on the Charter. So in coming together, I think we made a powerful double message, and out of that then came well, that's the declaration and the charter, kind of what happened since. Is this a, a continuing story? And I think we found that it has been a continuing story, that time and again it was Southern women who wrote and negotiated key texts that mandate empowerment for women, and that time and again they have been neglected, not least by uh, female Western writers. So our effort, I think, is to excavate and restore to glory you know, a pantheon of heroic ancestors that can hopefully inspire and build on our collective democratic heritage. And the idea of restorative archaeology, what the restorative archaeology idea says is that there are valuable things in the past, some of which can be even more advanced than we have today. It isn't that we carry on making things better, that there are better things and better creations in the past that have been 
buried and forgotten. So part of, I think, what we've done in this volume is to bring together people who have dug up and dusted down and cleaned off ideas and actions of great value in the contemporary world. Have there been any kind of surprising or new ideas that that came through for you from the contributing authors, something that really uh, you were surprised by? Well, I think every every chapter has that. I think overall, I would say, you know, it is not known even to, let's say, people who ought to know that the core rights and, and documents establishing a norm of equality and equal rights is the product of the work of women from Namibia, from Ghana, from India, from Pakistan, from Brazil, from Dominica, and many other non-Western white middle-class nations. And this is, it ought not to be, but this is revolutionary and I think empowering. And I think even if you ask feminist professors or other professors who should know, all too often they will attribute these actions to to uh, the white North, the Westerners, whether it's Eleanor Roosevelt or Ford Foundation-funded activists around Security Council Resolution 1325, which is an incredibly well-known resolution on women in peace and security. But I've yet to find anybody who really understands that this was the creation of Namibia as a state and women from Namibia who thought of and crafted the strategy. Uh, even, frankly, when you... We can get into this, but even, frankly, when you get into acknowledging it was Namibia... Uh, there's almost a patronizing, oh, well, we gave them the, you know, we gave them the right language and they just kind of, you know, uh, put it through the meeting. Well, A, the Security Council doesn't work like that. <laughs> but also that this uh, resolution and this initiative came out of the liberation struggle in Namibia and was crafted by Namibian women in the Namibian government. I guess that kind of brings me to my next question, which was the the idea or the concept of agency in international relations, which is an occurring thread throughout the book. The book talks about women who brought forward different types of agency to bring about change. Can you walk us through briefly what does what does agency mean? What what are the different definitions, I guess, that are brought forward in the book? And why does looking and studying at these types of agency matter for understanding the contribution of women to the UN and to its different activities throughout history? Well, to be frank, if you're not a scholar and you use the word agency or agent, people either think about a car hire firm or James Bond. Double uh, yeah. <laughs> setting, setting that aside, you know, agency is about, broadly speaking, it's about people or organizations that make a difference. And if you're analyzing how did things happen, who, you know, who are the agents of change, who made the change, that's what we mean. And all too often, there is an assumption that uh, it's only... Uh, people in the traditional centers of power in the United States and its allies or the then Soviet Union who get to determine outcomes and that people on the called periphery in the developing world or the periphery of society, typically most women, uh, just don't have any influence or, or indeed haven't really thought about these issues. Yeah, and I think it's really interesting as the book kind of puts aside that idea by looking at the idea of the pluralization of agency. And perhaps now to Fatima and Ellen, um, one of the contributors to, to the book, Amitav Acharya, looks at pluralization of agency and what this means for multilateralism. I'll just read out a little excerpt here. Agency should not be equated with states or organized non-state actors, but also individual women and men. 
while these individuals may be working for or associated with governments, intergovernmental organizations or NGOs, they do leave their own distinctive mark on international agreements and institutions, which may not necessarily reflect the positions of the organizations they work for. What are your thoughts on on this pluralization of agency? Perhaps first over to you, Ellen. Well, I think what I found in my chapter is that not only were these women representing governments, um, which is the only way they're identified in UN documents. In other words, if you look at what remains of any kind of public conversation about something like the Convention to Eliminate All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, individuals aren't identified, only countries are identified. But within countries, there are many different forms of agency. And what I found in looking at the biographies of the two principal rapporteurs, a UN term, the, the people who were tasked with actually writing out the early drafts of this document, is that their lives explained their commitment to the principles within the documents, um, that if you actually looked at their own pasts as women, um, they were pioneers in terms of their education they were the products of families where women had had agency as traders or as teachers. The women worked, in other words, they were not Western in the sense that their mothers hadn't been employed. There were many aspects of their own lived experience that explained their commitment to the principles in the document. And that's the agency I try to capture in my a snapshot of a piece. It's just a little bit of the history. It's by no means comprehensive. Yeah, we'll get to it in just a moment. I'm interested to, to hear more. Firstly, Fatima, what are your thoughts on these different types of agency? For me, there is a tendency to to limit women's agency to their gender. You know, for a while, for example, when you look at the UN Charter, we were reading that four women signed the Charter and fought for gender equality in the Charter, which is wrong because there were four of them, but only two of them pushed for gender equality. And by doing so, we sideline the contributions of women from the global south. So those women from Brazil, Dominican Republic, Uruguay, and other Latin American countries were not only representing their governments, but they were also known as strong feminists in their countries. They have been doing a lot of things to advance gender equality in the past before the charter. So I believe I'm not a diplomat, but just putting myself in their shoe, I think you really need to strongly believe in what you're fighting for to have such an impact. And looking at the challenges that they face, and even diplomats today, I believe that it's much easier to advocate for something you strongly believe in and leave a sustainable impact. Yeah. We'll explore a little bit more about um, your, your chapter in a moment, Fatima, but let's head to chapter seven first, which is written by Ellen and it's called Who Wrote Cedar? So Ellen, can you tell us about this chapter? Maybe let's step back a bit and firstly understand what is Cedar? How did it come about and who are the women who, who wrote it? CEDAR is the Convention to Eliminate All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. It was adopted by the United Nations in 1980, has today the participation of more countries than any other UN human rights convention, uh, with the notable exception of the United States, because of the very high bar for treaty ratification in the United States Senate. It's never been passed. That's an interesting point to make about it to start, because, uh, again, it's always been assumed that it was imposed 
on the rest of the world by Americans and Western European women in disrespect of local cultures. Actually, we're the only country that does not have, uh, of developed countries, an equal rights amendment to our constitution for women. We have never constitutionalized women's equality. And while we were debating this in the 1970s, women at the UN uh, representing all parts of the world, the Soviet bloc, Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, and Europe, were hammering out a very specific and expansive definition of what constitutes equality for women. CEDA is fascinating in that it understands that equality for women should not be simply giving them parity with men. Women are very different than men. And in order to achieve full participation in life and in public life, many aspects of their family situation have to be addressed. CEDA is 23 articles, many articles that spell out all forms of discrimination in detail and category the necessary responses of government to address inequality. It understands that women's inequality is rooted not only in law, but also in custom and in family situations. Basic discrimination must be addressed. The state has an obligation to fulfill women's human rights by addressing their situation in the family, not only as state actors. Uh, you know, 10 form articles spell out this discrimination in civic life, politics, education, employment, finance, agriculture, healthcare, sports, the media, criminal codes governing things like prostitution and sex trafficking, employment. CEDAW talks about equal pay and paid maternity leave. These were ideas far ahead of their time. They remain ahead of their time. It's a very expansive document and creative document. The two women I focus on as its authors are those who were rapporteurs for the development of DDAW, a declaration that preceded CEDAW by 13 years and was actually adopted in 1967. And again, the rapporteur for that group was a woman named Annie Giaghi from Ghana, who was sent to the UN to represent that, that newly independent state by Kwame Nkrumah, its first elected president. She outlasted his controversial reign. Uh, and remained at the UN through 1980 and the adoption of CEDAW. She was the first, well, actually the second woman lawyer in Ghana and the second justice of the courts, both in Ghana and in Africa, educated at the London School of Economics, having been a teacher before the war. The uh, rapporteur of CEDAW and its principal architect is Letitia Shahani. She was from a uh, a ruling family, the first cousin of Ferdinand Marcos of the Philippines, educated in the United States, where her father was a diplomat, uh, representing the Philippine government right after World War II. Um, she went to Wellesley College, and then the Sorbonne changed directions, thinking she would be a literary scholar, and came to the United States after her marriage and followed in her father's footsteps as a diplomat at the U.N., I stop there and we can yeah. go into the I mean, these are, these are fascinating stories of, of two women. You talk quite in depth about their stories, their backgrounds, the kind of really, really difficult and hard work they did to, to get to a convention and to, to kind of play this role of bridging differences, bridging divides in terms of opinion, um, geography, ideology, cultural differences, etc. So what are your thoughts on this enormous task they had of bridging divides and what did their backgrounds kind of inspire? in them to be able to, to bridge these divides? I think they understood that sex discrimination is deeply embedded in families and cultures. As I said, that they had to address not only the law, 
but also customs and practices, and that these these assumptions about women bridged geography, bridged class, bridged racial divides, and bridged large and small states. And so that was where they were able to come together. Also, the UN as an institution provided them a safe haven. This agreement was hammered out in the Commission on the Status of Women, which was created early in the UN's history, immediately after the adoption of the Charter, independent of the larger human rights enterprise that included men, again, brought back together during the debate on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights so that women, as Rebecca Adami, our editor, has pointed out, were important architects of the Universal Declaration, but they had been given space to hammer out these issues related to women quite independent of men. There's a debate, actually, in history, and I think a worthy one, of whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. I think most would argue that it's been a very good thing because women have had this institution of their own and been able to hammer out these issues because, again, it's not that easy to figure out how women achieve equality, and we're not there yet, although we've made a lot of progress, I would argue, over the last 50 years, but we certainly have many, many more miles to travel. Those who would argue that possibly being separate was not equal would say that it took a very, very long time as a result of the fact that these conversations happened among women largely to have men take them seriously. I think what's really changed since Beijing in 1995, in the last 25 years of this history, is uh, that major institutions and men now take these issues very seriously. And I think that's because of the failed development practices that took place in the prior 25 years. Men from the West went into the developing world with certain assumptions about class and about gender that actually didn't work on the ground. And I think the women who were the principal architects that I focus on understood the tremendous importance of formalizing the labor of women, of ending discrimination against women in the laws of their country and in the cultural practices and making certain that women were part of the development of their nations, that those countries wouldn't achieve peace and prosperity without full participation of women. So therefore, finally, and it's taken half a century, the men who run development banks and and are the major players um, are, are no longer just playing with what I like to call boys' toys. They've begun to play with girls' toys a bit, so that we've really, I think, transformed international development, ultimately diplomacy and peacemaking as well. I think we're a little less far along there. But I think development practices are now really recognizing how important inclusion and absence of discrimination is to development. So that CEDAW is not only an important and innovative tool of feminist jurisprudence, but it's also a tremendously impactful contribution development practice. Yeah, I guess that leads on to to my next question, which was exploring one form of agency that you mentioned in the chapter, where weaker states and representatives are faced with advancing their ideas in the face of powerful states and representatives. I'm just kind of continuing on from what you were mentioning there about entering kind of cultures and ideas thinking um, we know what's right. Do you have anything to share about that kind of agency and how it played out in terms of this particular story with CEDAW? Well, even though there was this Commission on the Status of Women, it wasn't independent of the larger forces playing out at the United Nations in this period. And so the new international economic order that was being debated in the 1970s 
at the UN has a tremendous relationship to, this is what I discovered that was most revealing to me, was how very much women changed the larger human rights conversation because they really talked about inclusion and about absence of discrimination. That, you know, you couldn't develop the world by having, you know, prosperity trickle down. It had to come up from the bottom. And in order for it to come up from the bottom, women had to be empowered. And again, that means that empowering women is not just the right thing to do for women. It's not a moral question only, although that, it's a very important moral question. It's also the smart thing to do if the ultimate objective of your development policy or your foreign policy is, is to raise prosperity and, and, and make prosperity the foundation for peace. That's something that Hillary Clinton in this country gave voice to and became, you know, made an international mantra. And she deserves a huge amount of respect and thanks for having done so. But she didn't, she didn't invent this idea. It was invented at the United Nations in the debate over CEDAW. Wow. We could definitely keep talking about this chapter, but let's leave a little bit for our audience to, to taste and then to read the book, hopefully, and then that chapter. There's some more stories over in chapter two. So over to you, Fatima. The chapter is co-written with Elise Didrikson. It's called The Latin American Women, How They Shaped the UN Charter and Why Southern Agency is Forgotten. The chapter opens with this incredible quote. Maybe do you want to read that quote out, Fatima, or should I read it? You, you can Go. read it. Okay. Okay. So it begins with this quote, the mantle is falling off the shoulders of the Anglo-Saxons, and we, the Latin American women, shall have to do the next stage of battle for women. Who is this? Who's the author of this quote, and what is your chapter about? The author of this book is Berta Lutz, who was the Brazilian delegate to the San Francisco Conference in 1945. She wrote this as also the ambassador of New Zealand back then, said that the Latin American women of the conference deserve the thanks of Democrats everywhere because it was owing to their efforts that Article 8 made its way into the UN Charter. So our chapter looks at what really happened in 1945 and how we try to understand how did we get women's rights included in the UN, the UN Charter. From our findings, it is clear that if it wasn't for Latin American women, the Charter would have included very little to no mention of gender equality. So it's thanks to them that Article 8, which is the article that ensures that women should contribute in the same capacity as men in the UN, and they haven't only, the Latin American women haven't only ensured uh, that this was included in the Charter, they also fought for the word sex to be added in the preamble of the Charter, noting that the promotion of human rights is without distinction of race, sex, language, or religion. So without them, the word sex wouldn't have been included in the preamble. The, the Latin American women also saw the need for a special commission on women, which is CSW, arguing that there were no countries in the world uh, where women had equality with men. And the women I'm talking about are among the signatory of the charter were Berta Lutz and Minerva Bernardino. So Berta Lutz from Brazil, Ber Minerva Bernardino from the Dominican Republic, with support from Uruguay, Mexico, and Australia. Bertolut on her side was specifically sent by the Brazilian government to, to ensure that the charter included gender equality. And this research would be incomplete if we also don't mention the, the position that those women got from, let's say, the so-called Western countries, which were at the time the U.S. and the British delegates. 
So the Latin American women were treated as uh, extremist feminists, and they were also told that bringing the discussion around gender equality, sex, etc., was very vulgar. And for us, it was extremely surprising because this story was not only not known to us as international relations students, master students, and really passionate about the history of gender equality in international relations. We had never heard of those women. But also when we went to, to Brazil and, and whenever we're talking to, to diplomats from those countries, they, they themselves didn't know about the, this part of history. So for me, we have to consciously give this visibility because the legacy is not going to happen by accident. There is an interesting part of the book where it looks at this kind of change in the UN documents that you mentioned, the inclusion of, of gender equality in the UN Charter was possible through the representation of these feminists from the global south. In fact, they were the architects of the table. Can you explain what that kind of means, being the architect of the table in, in, in terms of really being able to change these documents in the face of, of so much opposition? It's difficult to claim where ideas come from. And as Amitav Acharya noted, when good ideas come from the global south, they're often seen as imitations. Berta Lutz herself was told when she was having those those ideas, she was told that she was coming from a certain economic class. She lived abroad. She had a big network with between brackets Western delegates, and this is why she had uh, those kind of ideas. And which herself was not agreeing to it and reminded that she was coming from, and this is really what she says, between rackets, a backward country. And as I said before, the way history is told is very political. Until now, the academic field of history remains male-dominated, causing a hegemonic narrative in the presentation of history in international relations. And this presentation of history often leaves the global south as passive recipients of norms originated from the West. And this narrative is used to, for me, delegitimize. You got it. That's difficult. (laughs) (laughs) So this narrative is used to delegitimize the global mandate of the UN, which is a direct threat for me to, to multilateralism. And by recognizing the legacy of the global south, including women from this part of the world, to human rights, their contribution to, to human rights, we build ownership around the UN and multilateralism. And by making visible what has been invisible in history books, we'll make everyone, regardless of the gender, age, origins, or sex, included in the foundation of the UN and the post-war system as a, as a whole. On the other on the other hand, looking at the past is crucial to understand what we have been through to secure the rights that we have today. It's a good reminder to not take anything for granted. And like Berta Lutz said, so she has this quote that I found really interesting. It, she says that it's a strange psychological paradox that often those who were emancipated by the efforts of others are loot to acknowledge the source of their freedom. Basically, what it says is that Countries who have reached a good level of respect of human rights, including women's rights, tend to forget how they got there. So it's a great reminder that we shouldn't take anything for granted. As I speak today, still don't have, no countries have reached gender equality at all level. And I still hear, whenever I do this research, I talk about it, people tell me, but why are you talking about, like, why are you advocating for gender equality? It's fine, we have it. That's it. Let's move forward. And again, we're not there, so we shouldn't take it for granted. 
Absolutely. You do also talk about this idea of this kind of research helping us bring more global ownership of gender equality, which you just were kind of referring to beyond the dichotomy of the North and South, despite the fact we really do need to include all the contributions of the global South um, in multilateralism. What do you think this kind of means in terms of our cooperation today in terms of multilateralism, um, especially in the future when we look at a more global ownership of gender equality? The idea behind our research is to go beyond the North and South dichotomy and build ownership around global ideas, including feminism. It's still surprising how, between brackets, non-Western countries themselves are not aware of their own history uh, and thus are not able to say it. I still remember when we were telling this story to diplomats in the diplomatic school in Brasilia, uh, how themselves was, were very surprised by what we were telling them. For me, when we build ownership, we reduce the us vs them narrative. And, and yes, it's again building that idea that everyone is entitled to, to take ownership around those kind of ideas. And, Again, I also remember how when we were in school in Brazil, teaching again this part of history, at the end of the presentation, the kids were telling us how feminism, which I define as the belief that men and women should have equal rights and opportunities, is not their thing. So why we were telling them at the same time how feminism in the UN has its origin from Latin America. And the UN Charter remains a perfect example that it is only when diplomats move beyond the conversation, they find in terms of North and South, us versus them, that true gender equality can ever become a reality. And if it wasn't for the San Francisco conference that acted as a platform to bring together those ideas, give the opportunity to those voices to exist and to influence, so those women were not only sitting at the table, they were truly influencing the agenda. So if we didn't have that platform, so thanks to multilateralism, and have Latin American women influence the content of the charter, one can really question when gender equality would have been today. An incredible story. Thank you, Fatima. We're almost running out of time. And so I wanted to ask you all a bit more about multilateralism. We have covered it quite a bit of ground with regard to agency. Um, but back to you, Dan, for your opinion on this. Um, do we need to rethink international relations and multilateralism after understanding these different forms of agency that contribute to, to our history? Well, if we want to survive as a civilization, then we need to understand its vital nature. I think you know it's decades ago that some wise people started to to realize that the central dilemma for humanity is that we've created a society that can destroy itself through two world wars, the bomb, and now environment, and that those issues cannot be resolved by peoples or states individually. They can only be resolved by cooperation. And whether or not humanity is able to grasp that reality, that depends on the army outcome as to whether we'll survive or not. And it is a, I enjoy pointing this out, but some traditional classical realist scholars, Hans Morgenthau, who is still taught in uh, to decades of students, in his later work, he fully realized this and argued that civilization had to adapt to deal with the realities of the bomb and that you couldn't just try to incorporate the bomb into military affairs. So from that classical realist perspective that you have to adapt society, he would, I think, see uh, feminist foreign policy as classical realism. That in order to survive, we have to cooperate and we have to change our culture. Now, of course, that it, neither feminist scholars nor realists really want to admit that perspective. 
But I think it concentrate it concentrates the mind on what's going on here. And our work on in this area is part of a broader work on revisiting uh, the creation of the UN originally as the the definitive anti-fascist alliance, military and political. And people, I think, throughout the UN system have forgotten that the entire US system was created, first of all, to defeat and then to prevent the re-emergence of extremist nationalism and extremist ideology. And I was talking to a Middle East diplomat who was talking about the situation in southern Syria and I said, well, what do, what do you need to do? And he said, well, we need jobs and, uh, and, and stability and food. And I said, well, you do realize, of course, that the founding of the Food and Agriculture Organization in 45 was based upon the idea hunger made Hitler. And that in this period, it was understood that human security was central to international security, not marginal. And human security was not invented in the 1990s. It was invented in the 1940s. And that, I think, is how this picture on really understanding global feminism fits into the broader mission of rediscovering the essential nature of multilateralism. Yeah. Over to you, Ellen. Uh, I would just put an exclamation point on what Dan said. UN has a reputational problem, certainly in the United States. And again, that reputational problem has in some part to do with the fact that the, the measure of its value is from the boys' toys perspective. Well, you know, there's still wars or regional conflicts and there's still not perfect development in the world. But if you look at it from another perspective, from women's perspective, I think its great gift to the world has been these very well-developed ideas of how to achieve women's rights and of the role that women play in stabilizing and securing societies. And so I think we have a, a good story to tell in this book about the role of multinational institutions. And it, it is only because of the UN that not only were the women we write about brought together, they were the diplomats, they were the you know parliamentarians, but also they were supported by a huge and very, very dynamic non-governmental society of women who help them work through their ideas and come to their conclusions. And that's another aspect of the UN that I think is undervalued, um, the fact that it has been a forum not only for diplomats, but also for women from civil society. And while some of those women were, you know, elites, they, as I show in my book, went back to their countries, the women particularly, and founded deeply rooted movements in subaltern, as the academics would say, populations in, in their countries. They empowered women in the marketplace. They brought education to girls. And so this is kind of a good news story, and, and we need to tell it. Yeah, absolutely. Finally, to Fatima. For me, this multilateralism and the UN as a platform is also a great opportunity to to give a voice also to little countries who might not have the weight to influence the agenda otherwise. Because if you don't bring all those countries all together, how can we? How can they at least discuss? And and this is what I I really like. If you like, when you hear criticism, at least we still have a discussion. At least we're bringing those countries all together in the same room and say, okay, now talk. And if it wasn't for that, what would that be then? And I, I believe it's really important to create this this room for those agencies to happen. And this is what multilateralism do. It just puts everyone in a second room to discuss and to allow change to happen. So it's really crucial to keep creating this enabling environment for ideas to become action 
and impact truly the life of thousands of people in the world. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Fatima. Um, for those in our audience who would like to read the book, um, it is open access, I believe. Um, where can they where can they find it? Maybe to Dan to share. So I think if you just search up Women in the UN as a book, you'll find it, and very quickly you'll find that you can download it for free on the the Routledge for the Routledge Publishers website. So do be in touch with us individually and as editors. You know we're keen to continue to take the message uh, out and reinforce it, and to to partner and talk to people who perhaps got. I'm sure there are many other stories in many other walks of life that need an airing. Thank you, Dan. We'll make sure to put the link in the show notes for the episode and may the stories continue. Thanks so much to you, Ellen, Fatima and Dan for joining us today and all the best as you continue your good work. Thank you, Natalie. And great to be talking with you, Ellen and Fatima. We must talk soon. (laughs) Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Thank you, Natalie. Bye. So there we go. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Ellen Chesler, Fatima Sator, and Dan Plesh. You'll find all the links to resources mentioned in the conversation, as well as some more resources in the show notes for this episode. And if you liked the conversation, we'd love it if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review us over on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't hesitate to share with us your ideas for future episodes. The next page is produced at the UN Library and Archives, Geneva. Until next time, take care. Bye for now.